Hi, this is Sean Perrin, and you're listening to the Clarineat.com podcast. In today's podcast, we talk with Michael Norsworthy of the Boston Conservatory. He shares a lot of interesting stories with us about his time as a student. He talks about his new record, and he discusses chamber music and chamber music uh, performance. Before we get started, I want to quickly apologize for the quality of the audio. We had a few issues with uh, the recording software, and although there was a few blips here and there... Um, I felt that, first of all, we we just talked for quite a long time. I didn't want to have to go back and use any more of Mr. Norsworthy's time. But also, we just had such a great conversation that it would have been a shame to, to start from scratch. So please bear with the, the slight um, imperfections in the audio, and we'll make sure to get that sorted out for next time. Without any further ado, here's the interview with Michael Norsworthy. All right, Michael. Welcome to the podcast. How are you? Good, Sean. How are you? Pretty good. What's the weather like there today in Boston? It's freezing. Freezing. That's actually pretty warm here. We've changed places for once. Um, so you are a very uh, well-known international clarinetist. It's a little hard to know where to start with questions for someone like yourself, but maybe a good one to start with would be what started you on the clarinet? What, what caused you to pick up a clarinet for the first time? Well, I was a saxophone player originally. Um, I try not to tell too many people that. Um, But uh, I was a saxophone player, and then it came time for my sister to choose an instrument a couple of years later, and she was much smaller than I was, so my parents thought, well, maybe clarinet or flute or something. So my uncle had a clarinet over in uh, in his closet from when he was in high school. And he brought the instrument over, and my sister didn't like it, so she decided she was going to play the flute. So the clarinet sat in the house for a while, and I thought, well, that's got to read. I mean, how difficult can it be? I already play the saxophone. Uh, So I picked up the instrument, and I started learning by myself. And I asked my grandmother um, to hear a particular record set that she had. She had a five-record set of Benny Goodman tunes. And so, actually, I borrowed this record set from her. I took it home. I recorded the records under reel-to-reel tape. Uh, Yes, I'm old enough to remember (laughs) reel-to-reel tape. Uh, And I taught myself all of the Benny Goodman tunes that were on there, including all the solos and whatnot. And I never had a teacher um, originally on on clarinet. But uh, then I decided that I wanted to start taking lessons. And it worked out really well because my teacher was a doubler. Uh, so he played saxophone, clarinet, and flute uh, very, very well. Uh, his name was Jim Hahn, and uh, he ended up going to work for Disney. Oh, wow. And uh, so after a little while with Jim, then he sent me to what he called, quote, a proper clarinet teacher, uh, <laughs> somebody who was really, truly a clarinet player and uh, also a doubler, but but mostly a clarinet player, and his name was Mike Solick. And uh, Mike was Mike was a really great teacher for me. Uh, he really he really did a lot of fundamental things and worked a lot on my embouchure and uh, used to whack me upside the head every time I used vibrato and <laughs> various and sundry we other. Things. We won't get into that. That'll open up a can of worms, I'm sure. <laughs> but he was a really great teacher for me. Um, and uh, so I'm in eighth grade. I decided that I wanted to start playing clarinet in the band instead of saxophone. And the band director had a fit. And uh, I decided I was going to do it anyway. Uh, so I did clarinet sometimes, saxophone sometimes. I oftentimes went back and forth. And 
that's pretty much how I got started. And I was, I was always a doubler. So you said the band teacher didn't want you to switch. You must've been excelling at saxophone and maybe leading or something in the group or. I was, I was leading, but there were a lot of saxophone players. I mean, every, you know, every kid in the eighties wanted to play the saxophone because every eighties pop tune, as you well know, has a, you know, really cool saxophone solo right in the middle. Well, not to mention the Simpsons coming in in the. the Well, of course. Yeah. Uh, So, so everybody played saxophone and I thought I would like to play the clarinet and. Uh, I wanted to do that because I did saxophone and jazz band and things like that. And I didn't really do much classical playing, but I really liked classical music. And clarinet seemed to me to be a really good way to sort of, you know, satisfy that, um, that, that longing for something classical. Well, it's interesting, though, because you say you started uh, by transcribing Benny Goodman tunes. Is that right? I did, yes. yes so, <laughs> talking about classical music and Benny Goodman. But but Benny Goodman was really, I mean, my grandmother, like I said, had this five-disc set, or five-disc, five-record set, pardon me. Um, and she also had other things like Benny Goodman's version of the Mozart Concerto. Yeah, he's um, done. Mozart Quintet. So he was, it, it, it became very clear to me that the clarinet was a sort of a a much more flexible instrument, at least to my young, naive mind. Uh, and you know, you could do classical and jazz with it. So I thought it was, I thought it was a, you know, just sort of a good fit for me. Well, I think there's some truth to that even just cause even if you only consider the range of the instrument, it's much wider and the tone color is different in the registers, unlike a saxophone. Sure. It's more, um, it's more, uh, uniform and it doesn't have as many notes, obviously. Um, so that's very interesting, but that's what got you started. What, what was it that kept you going? What was the driving force? of music and especially towards your clarinet playing? Well, I, I don't really know, to be honest with you. I mean, I, I was, I was completely obsessed with music. Um, I still am. Uh, I mean, just about everything I do revolves around music in one way, shape or form. Um, and, um, but as a kid, you know, my mom never had to bother me to practice. I, I practiced when I needed to practice and I didn't practice when I didn't need to practice. I was, I was pretty good at sort of, you know, knowing what I had to do and doing what was necessary to get there. Um, And uh, I think she would have preferred that I practice more and more and more and more. But that's just not the way that I ever really was until I got to college. But um, but I I kept going with music because it I don't know. I had a difficult childhood and. um, Music was always the thing that I kept coming back to that sort of, you know, saved my life or, you know, even things out in my emotional roller coaster of the brain. Mm-hmm. Um, so and uh, so I I don't know. In some ways, I, I, I felt like I owed it something. In some ways, I felt like, well, what else would I do? I mean, this is this is what I do. This it, it became my entire identity when I was in high school. I mean, some kids had the football team or the basketball team, the cheerleading squad, or, you know, some kids were great artists and I did music all the time. And so it became, it just became such a, a huge part of my identity. Uh, and so I, I just couldn't imagine myself doing anything else. Um, even though I've, you know, I've done other things in my career, I've taken time off from playing and whatnot. And I've, you know, I was a, I was a web developer for a while. I've worked lots and lots of part-time jobs. I worked my way through school as a cook. Um, you know, I've done hotel jobs. I've done all kinds of different things. Um, but 
somehow music was always the thing that I just kept coming back to. So, so what kept me going? I'm, I'm not sure whether to call it a passion or an obsession. Um, I like the way I you worded that when you said that it had given so much to you, you felt like you owed it something. That's an interesting, well, interesting but that way was, of looking at it. That was the truth because for me, like I said, I didn't have the, I really didn't have the easiest childhood. Um, you know, growing, I was very keenly aware of the fact that they called it growing pains. Mm. Um, and, uh, and there was certainly lots of pains. Uh, and I'm sure lots of other people have had the same thing, but uh, I can't speak for them. I can only talk about me. Well, we don't uh, have to go into it too much, but was um, were your parents musical? Were they supportive of your music? Or? My parents were both musical. Um, my mom was a violinist. Um, and she played in high school and whatnot. And my father was sort of an amateur musician uh, who ended up doing things like singing in a barbershop quartet uh, that uh, at one point was on the Ed Sullivan show. Oh, wow. Um, and, um, and he always played guitar and sang and we used to, you know, sing around the holidays and whatnot. Um, my grandparent, my, all of my, my aunts and uncles were, were musical in one way, shape or form. One person played uh, trumpet. My aunt played the flute. Other uncle played the clarinet as I meant, uh, uh, as I mentioned earlier. Um, but so I was always around music all the time. And my grandmother though was, probably the person that I remember the most because my, my grandmother had, she had a beautiful singing voice, but the thing that she could do probably better than just about anybody I'd ever met was she could whistle. Um, and she had the most beautiful sounding whistle, uh, and she, you know, would color it with vibrato and, and so on and so forth. And she always had something like Frank Sinatra or Johnny Mathis or something going on in the background. And so I learned all of these tunes, you know, from the time I was just a small kid. Um, and I still love listening to this stuff because it, it really does remind me of my grandmother. My grandmother was, was kind of a big deal in my life. And, uh, but she was very musical, even though I'm not sure whether she ever took a lesson on anything uh, in her life. Uh, she, she did play the organ later on in life, but, uh, but never around me. She always said she was really embarrassed to play in front of me. <laughs> so what was the most important thing you learned as a student, would you say? The, oh, geez, that's a huge question. <laughs> uh, I guess all the things you learned as a student in a way. Well, geez, the most important thing that I learned as a student was that I had, it was my job as the student not to be spoon fed information, but to come prepared to the best of my abilities using every bit of knowledge that I had and then play something. And then hopefully my teacher would take what I did and help me go further with it. Because mm -hmm. um, I think a lot of students come to lessons, you know, they've learned the notes and the rhythms and the dynamic the dynamics, but they don't necessarily have any kind of a phrasing plan. They don't know anything about the form. They don't know what's going on harmonically in a piece there. You know, so, so I usually start master classes and trial lessons and things and, and actually just lessons in general with, you know, tell me what you know about this. Um, because I, I do want to see how much, how much work the student has actually done because I don't want to do all the work for them. The, the thing that I ask them more often than not is, 
what is your version of this piece like? Mm -hmm. um, because oftentimes they've come in and they have done their homework. They've listened to recordings. They've, they've, they've score studied, they've, you know, finger practiced and play practiced and all kinds of other things. But what they've tried to do in a sense is they've tried to make their version sound like whatever version it is, is their favorite that they've heard on a recording. Yeah. Um, and so, <clears throat> but I think for something like Mozart or Brahms or Weber or so, certainly something that is older and standard, um, you know, and I think Mozart is probably the best example um, because everybody somehow as a student wants to come in and I want my Mozart to be like this person's or that person's and I want to know why they want their version to be like that and number two, how is their version going to be different? Well, it's not. I, you know, I want to copy so-and-so. Well, but we already have so-and-so, so why are you doing, you know, why are you trying to do version two of so-and-so when, when whoever that is is probably still around and, you know, doing performances of it themselves? So in other words, what makes them special and unique? What kind of original ideas can they have? And uh, I'm reminded of a quote um, that, that uh, during a conversation with Boulez uh, that I had, uh, he told me, he said, you have to do old music like it's new and new music like it's old. Hmm. Um, and I thought that was really quite something because I hadn't thought about it that way. I had thought, you know, there was this huge division between contemporary music and, and older music. And in fact, really, there isn't. Um, so, so I ask students to, you know, approach something, even if you've heard a recording or 15 or 100 recordings of it, you know, what would your version be like? What would you do? And what, why would you be making the decisions that you are making? Yeah, I think that's great, actually. I, I'm reminded of uh, Glenn Gould said a similar thing. Um, actually, I was talking with John Roberts, who was Glenn Gould's, uh, one of the people who worked at the CBC Radio when, when he was there. Mm -hmm. And uh, someone asked, well, did, did Gould ever play anything that was in his own style? Like, did he improvise? And write his own music and, and Roberts said, well, everything Gould touched was his own. Like every everything he played was his own style and, and he sort of refused to go with the status quo and, you know, like it or not, a lot of people were drawn to that and, and, and interestingly though, now a lot of people are trying to imitate that, his style. And yeah, I mean, you know, it's, I mean, imitation is the fondest form of flattery, obviously, mm -hmm. but, you know, when you're talking about teaching somebody how to be an artist uh, what I'm trying to help the student do is to sort of unlock something special within themselves and I don't have the keys um, you know I, I I see myself more as a guide mm -hmm. uh, than somebody who just sort of sits there and bosses people around telling them crescendo here and diminuendo there and breathe here and that's it um, so I see myself very much as somebody who who guides people, who asks hopefully the right questions at the right time, who, you know, can put things in such a way that it will, you know, sort of wind up with some sort of positive response or a question from the student. Um, and I think that that's one of the, the my favorite things about my studio is that um, I don't have any two players in my studio that are alike. Mm -hmm. um, they're all they're all very different. They all have very different specialties. They all have different likes and dislikes, as you know, as all of us do. But that sort of you know 
amplified with my own studio. And as a result, what it enables them to do, it enables them to not only learn from me, but to learn from each other. Mm -hmm. uh, because it creates this community of people that are not afraid to ask questions, that are interested in growing artistically, that are, that are respectful of other people's opinions. And so what that does, like I said, is it, it really creates this whole community of learning uh, which I find incredibly valuable um, because I had this when I was at Michigan State University um, studying with Elsa Verdeer. Um, there were many of us, uh, she had a, a very large studio and everybody seemed to have a different specialty and I somehow wind up becoming the contemporary music person, uh, which was a role that I was very happy to occupy, but I didn't want to forget about Brahms and Mozart as well. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I tried to find a way to sort of bridge the gap and this quote that I mentioned by Boulez was something that helped me with that. So, um, <clears throat> but so if if there was something that I learned as a student, like I said, that was it was to use all of the knowledge that I had and make sure to come to lessons and and to, to come to anything lessons, rehearsals, concerts, whatever, with you know a clear idea of this is what I wanted to say, and I could evaluate later and uh, after the performance or what have you. And I could say, okay, this is what I wanted to say. Did I accomplish that? Yes or no. And is that something I would like to say again? Or would I say it in a different way? Or, you know, it, it, it really provided a very valuable sort of analytical tool for me to do, you know, one concert to the next. It's interesting you say it that way as well. I mean, um, there's a John Cage quote that I, I've never really agreed with. I think it was John Cage. He said, uh, I have nothing to say and I'm saying it. But that's not a very, to me anyways, a very sort of wise outlook on, on a performance. Um, and it, it's, it's, it makes sense to me that in order to play a piece, if you don't know what you're saying, what, why are you playing it? Sure. Uh, I don't pretend to understand some of the things that Cage said. Um, uh, I, does he? he was... <laughs> Well, I'm I'm sure he does. I mean, I know people that know him uh, or that knew him rather. I never knew him, so I'm I'm not a, you know a good person to talk with about him because I just mm -hmm. never knew him. I I don't know what he was like or what have you, but from from the many things that I heard about him, um many of his statements were sort of deliberately contradictory or yeah. they were philosophical. You know, or they were they were philosophical and you know, I mean, the, one of the quotes that I remember is him saying uh, that he never heard a sound that he didn't like. Mm -hmm. um, and perhaps that's true, but I think many of us have heard sounds that we didn't like. Um, so I'm I'm not entirely sure how human that is. Um, maybe it's it's very philosophical and very interesting for, you know, the time period. But I don't know, for me, whether that really holds any relevance. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So, um, move on with the questions here. You, you studied with Kalman Opperman. Could mm -hmm. you tell us a story about working with him? <laughs> so, uh... <laughs> Sounds like there are many. <laughs> there, there, there are many. Um, my, my favorite, though, um, is actually the story of my first lesson. Um, I was a, I was a graduate student at New England Conservatory, and Richard Stoltzman sent me down to Cal Opperman um, to have some lessons to, you know, properly build my technique and and other things. And so, 
Um, so I showed up, I drove down from New York. I left at eight or rather drove to New York from Boston. I left at eight o'clock in the morning and I got there around 1130. Well, my lesson was at noon. So I parked and I got a cup of coffee and, and then I went up to the door and there was a note taped to the door and it says, dear Mr. Norsworthy went for a walk. Be back shortly, Mr. Opperman. <laughs> and so I waited and, you know, about 10 minutes after 12, he came back and and his wife, Louise, was with him. Um, they went on a walk every day. Um, so, And he lived in the basement apartment. Um, and when we walked in to the apartment, the entire apartment was filled from floor to ceiling with clarinet stuff. Oh, wow. I mean, barrels, mouthpieces, tools, workbenches, you know, sheet music, books. I mean, you, you've, you've never seen so much clarinet stuff in your entire life. So... So I sat down, and um, <clears throat> I took my clarinet out. He looked at my instrument first, to, you know, to make sure that I think everything was in good working order. So, uh, so I sat down, and he said, "Okay, play a chromatic scale." So I played a chromatic scale very quickly, and he said, "No, no, 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 go, go very slowly." So I, I got about four notes in, and he said, "Okay, you have no idea what you're doing, do you?" <laughs> And I said, well, you know, I'm a graduate student at Richard Stoltzman's and I've, I've played professionally in the world for the past few years. And <laughs> I, I, I think I have somewhat of a clue. And he said, well, that's where you're wrong. <clears throat> so <Wow. laughs> we began the, the very arduous process of, of you know, build, ripping you down and then consequently building you back up again, which was sort of a style of teaching. But my first lesson, I was there for a total of 11 and a half hours. Sorry, 11 or one and a half? 11. 11 and a half. And a half hours. I arrived at noon, and I left at around 11.30 at night. Um, and during that time, we had probably played for seven or eight hours mm -hmm. um, from books that he had written from certain etudes that he were that he thought were important, we did a Bach, uh, uh, one of the Bach partitas, um, for, from the the sonatas and partitas for violin, and he made a couple of barrels for me, and he made a mouthpiece for me, just like that, just like that. Um, wow. It took it took him about four minutes to make a barrel, and it took him even less time to make a mouthpiece. Um, and it was by far the most incredible equipment that I had ever played on. Um, Do you and, still have uh, those items? I still have them. I will never get rid of them. I have many of them now. <laughs> wow. So, um, so, um, but, so I left at 11.30, which means that I didn't get home to Boston until about 3 o'clock in the morning. Mm -hmm. And my phone rang at 6.30. And I answered, you know, I'm like, Hello. He says, hello, hello, it's Mr. Opperman. And I said, oh, oh, um, um, did, I, did I forget something at your house? I'm, I'm, I'm some re really sorry. He said, oh, no, 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 no. I'm just calling to see if you're practicing. At 6 a.m. after just having the all-day lesson? And I said, um, it's 6.30, and I just got home at 3 o'clock, so n no, I'm, sh should I be practicing? He said, <laughs> you, should, you should practice. You should you should get up and you should do your scales before you go to the bathroom, and I said okay. You know, I'll I thought well, if I just say okay and you know and I agree with him, then I can get him off the phone. He wants to hear. 
and uh, and I said, okay, you know, I'll I'll get up and practice. And he said, okay, I'll call you back in ten minutes. Wow. <laughs> and so I called. He called back in ten minutes. I mean, ten minutes on the nose. And I played for him for three hours on the phone. This is the very so next day. The very next day, I had I had had maybe three hours of sleep, and that was that was assuming that I had gone to bed and my and went to sleep as soon as my head hit the pillow. My but, God, that's, this but, sounds crazy. How long did you study with him for? I studied with him only for about a year and a half, or maybe two years. I mean, and it was sporadic. I mean, sometimes I would go down once a week. Sometimes I would go down once a month. Um, you know, I think I had probably a total of maybe 20 lessons with him or something. Um, but 20 lessons was not 20 hours. 20, 20 lessons was, was more like a hundred hours. Wow. Um, and, uh, and he was very good to me. Um, and the highest compliment I have ever gotten is when a student, uh, who was studying with him said that they were thinking of coming up to Boston and they knew me and what he's and he actually said to the student, according to the student, I never heard this come out of Cal's mouth, but but he he apparently said, well, that's a good idea. He knows what he's doing. <laughs> so it went full circle. And that for me was the highest compliment I have ever been given in my life. Um, and so uh, because he really was he was somebody who was just a, you know, sort of a master teacher in and not even just a teacher. He was he was a master mentor. Mm -hmm. I mean, he, he made you, he made you want to do it all the time. He made you constantly want to improve. He, he was inspiring and he was relentless. Um, and some people had a problem with his, you know, with his being relentless. And I never did because I think I was just as obsessed as he was. Um, and he was very fond of telling us, you know, he said, you know, this is not my hobby. I've been doing this for 75 years. Yeah. And it's it's the God's honest truth. He had been doing it for 75 years, and, and it's all he did. He was completely and totally obsessed with what he did. He must have had a very understanding wife to be having all that stuff in the apartment. Well, his wife, I mean, Wheezy was, he called her Wheezy. Her name was Louise, but <clears throat> but she was she was amazing because she, she basically lived for him. Yeah. Um, you know, she waited on him hand and foot. You know, she cooked, she brought him tools, she brought him mouth. I mean, whatever he asked for, she brought him. And, um, but they, they, they loved each other to death. Um, they spent so much time together. And, you know, like I said, they would take a walk every single day, usually a couple of times a day. Uh, sometimes they would walk with a dog and, uh, other times they would just walk by themselves. But, um, but she was, she was an amazing woman. And, he wouldn't have been able to do a lot of the things that he did had it not been for her, I think. Um, yeah. And so, and he was very, he was always very keen to give her credit um, because she really deserved lots and lots of credit. Sir, did you say he lived in New York? Yes, he did. Okay. So th did they live there their whole life or? Pretty much. Yeah. Yep. The, 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 con the, the apartment that he lived in um, was, uh, he he had lived there for over fifty years. Wow! So it was on West Sixty Seventh Street. So what about your time with Richard Stoltzman? You studied with him too. I did. I studied with Richard um, while I was at New England Conservatory. Um, I was there for three and a half years, 
And um, Richard was the teacher that I sort of dreamed of studying with. Um, he was the first real uh, classical clarinet player that I ever heard. Uh, when I was a boy, um, and I, it was, I remember the year, it was 1989, I was given my first CD player and my first couple of CDs, and one of them was Richard Stoltzman playing the Brahms sonatas, and the other one was the Phantom of the Opera. And strangely enough, I wound up playing the national tour of Phantom of the Opera, and I ended up studying with Richard Stoltzman. Wow. Um, so, uh, but, so Richard was somebody, like, for, for, for me, that was just how the clarinet sounded. That was how the clarinet was supposed to sound. It was, it was incredibly vocal and very flexible, and sometimes there was vibrato, sometimes there wasn't. Um, but his his sound I, I found to be very, very beautiful and flexible and, like I said, vocal. So for me, that was just always what the clarinet sounded like. And I always wanted to study with him. And, uh, and I had no idea that I would study with him years and years later. Um, but the time with him was, um, it went by entirely too quickly because I feel like with somebody that had kind of a musical mind, you could literally spend the rest of your life just learning from somebody like that. And um, he was very big into, uh, it was very big on articulation and speech and always making things sound vocal. Um, he believed that articulation, um, that we should have as, as many different articulative sounds as there were letters in the alphabet. Um, mm. And he, he would very frequently, instead of the T or the D or the, you know, the cuz or the does or the ga uh, that all of us would use for different articulations. He would frequently say, could this be like an M or an N? Uh, or could this be more, you know, like a P, like, you know, with a pop in the beginning of it? Um, and it was it was through him, I think, that I I learned how to use articulation in a really expressive way um, that I had not really thought of before. I knew there could be long and short and different varieties of longs and shorts. Um, but I had never thought about, you know, the, about articulation, like I had thought about speech. Um, so, so that had a, that had a big influence in my playing. Um, and, uh, the lesson that I learned it in, I, I actually had gotten thrown out of the lesson because we were doing the Copeland concerto. Mm -hmm. Um, and I started with the, the, the faster section, bum, 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 bum. And he really didn't like the way that I did it. And he cringed every time I did it. And I thought, oh, my God, I made Richard Stoltzman cringe. <laughs> um, and he, and <clears throat> finally, uh, after maybe 10 or 15 minutes of working on it, we just couldn't get the articulation right. And he said, you know, I don't, I don't really know what you're doing. But um, if you come in here and do that next week, he said, you're just going to go home. He said, so you should just pack your stuff up now and go home. Wow. And so I did. I was I was very upset, and um, and so we had set up time, uh, uh, set up a time for the next lesson, and I said, uh, should I meet you here? And he said, what? And I said, well, should I meet you here, or should we or are we doing the lesson at your house? He said, no, 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 no. Say here again. I said here. And what he had figured out from listening to me speak was that I actually had kind of a nasal sounding voice when I, on particular words. And so he said, get your clarinet back out. So I got my clarinet out 
and we figured out that what I was doing was I was running the sound basically through my nose when I was articulating. And so mm. it would create this sort of weird, I don't want to say it was a scooping sound or what have you, but it was, it was certainly bright and kind of like yip, 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 yip. Um, and he really didn't like it, but we had figured out then, or rather he had figured out that what I had to do to get rid of it was to keep the sound out of my nose. And that was sort of just another example of how he used vocal things to influence his own playing and his teaching. Um, and so that basically solved that particular articulation problem. And it changed the entire world for me because articulation was really one of the things that I had struggled with as a younger student. Yes. Yeah, so many do. Sure. And I, I, I think it's, it's a natural thing to struggle with because it's something that, you know, as a teacher, you can't see on the inside of somebody's mouth. I mean, I suppose you could hook them up to some x-ray thingy. Um, but, um, <clears throat> but I, I find it difficult to teach. Uh, it's one of the things that's, that requires a lot of experimentation, uh, requires a lot of, a lot of patience on the, you know, the part of the student and the teacher. Um, but I think it's something that can be taught. Um, it just takes a while sometimes because again, you, you can't see it and everybody is, you know, slightly different, obviously, uh, radically different, probably physiologically, but, um, so, but Richard was, you know, he was a little like Cal in the way also that his lessons would, you know, go on for quite a while. Um, my lessons were never shorter than two hours. Wow. Um, and sometimes I would have lessons every week and, you know, they'd be two to four hours long. If they were at the house, they were, they were for sure going to be longer. Um, if they were at the conservatory, they were right at the two hour mark usually because that was when he had to go put more quarters in the meter. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but, uh, but he was a very, he was a very giving teacher for me. He, he was somebody that, you know, would call me from various places in the world and, um, there was a time that he called me once at four o'clock in the morning and said, um, uh, Michael, it's, it's Dick Stoltzman. I said, yeah, hi, Mr. Stoltzman. It's four in the morning. He said, yeah, I know. Um, uh, could you, could you get up and play the Mozart concerto? Are you practicing? Yeah. <laughs> and I, and I said, what? You know, and I'm thinking to myself, you know, who in God's name are these people like Opperman and Stoltzman? Like, why do they do these things to me? Um, I thought I had done something wrong. And I said, no, you know, Mr. Stoltzman, I can't get up at 4 a.m. and practice, you know, play the clarinet. I, I have neighbors. And he said, no, that's okay. He said, you can just play really, really quietly and hold the bell to the phone and I'll listen. Um, and I said, but why do you want me to do this? He said, because it's 8 o'clock uh, in the evening over in Japan and you might have to be on stage right now. <laughs> so he was really trying to prepare me for... Wow. You know, for for the way that life really was going to work as a, you know, as, a, as somebody who is traveling around the world playing the clarinet and you could be horribly jet lagged. But by God, it was eight o'clock at night and you had to walk on stage regardless of how badly you felt or how tired you were. What an um, amazing lesson. <clears throat> it was an amazing lesson because it was it was so practical. Um, and uh, and I think that's that's the thing about many of my teachers that I valued the most is that they were, they were so practical about so many things and they taught me how to look at things very objectively and how to, to rip things apart and, you know, build, build things back together. And I was always a little bit of a tinkerer. I liked 
you know, I, I have a repair shop as well. Uh, so I liked taking my clarinet apart when I was a kid. I liked figuring out how it worked. I used to work with a friend of mine who was a piano technician and, and, uh, so I would help him and, you know, watch pianos be ripped apart. So I liked doing that type of work. And I think that sort of analytical mindset of, okay, so you took it apart now you have to put it back together and you have to figure out how it works. That's a big part of my teaching because I think if I can give a student a concept or, um, or a way to sort of, you know, take something apart and put it back together, that becomes transferable then to so many other pieces. It's not just unique or special to that one particular piece. Um, so for me, you know, the, all of my teachers were really, really great in that regard. Um, they all encouraged me to be myself. They all encouraged me to, to use the strengths that I had and obviously improve on the weaknesses. Um, but, um, but it was, it was, I don't know. I was, I was very fortunate with teachers. So did you play it at four in the morning for him or that day? Every, every single note of it. Wow. So you played the clarinet concerto at four in the morning. Um, but if I was to walk over to your stand right now, what would I find? You would find Cal Opperman's advanced velocity studies. You would find uh, the Langinus book three. Um, you would find Opperman's modern daily studies book one, and you would find the Bible. A pack, the, the Bible, <laughs> and you would find um, uh, a packet. Um, my students refer to it as the smiley packet. Um, they are many of the exercises that I feel are sort of, you know, the building blocks of all kinds of things like the body makeum studies, some of the Langinus articulation studies, some Opperman things, the close scales and things like that, um, sort of all put together in a little, you know, Xeroxed packet that I have myself. I do own all the books, so I don't feel badly about making a packet for myself out of copies. Um, and I'm working on uh, Frank to Kelly's clarinet concerto that I'm doing in April. Um, and then uh, the Penderecki sextet. And um, I always have some bass clarinet stuff up. I'm usually playing some Bach or Telemann or something like that. So I'm, I'm trying to find an edition of the Telemann Fantasias that I really like right now. You must have a big music stand. <laughs> Uh, yeah, it, it's one of those extendable thingies that, you oh, yeah. know, so it's, it's big enough. <laughs> Amazing. So, um, what is one, well, what is the most important piece of advice that you'd give to your students? And I know that's kind of a tough question, but is, no, is it's not, something? it's an no, easy it's question. Not? Okay. <clears throat> My, the, the, there, there are two things. Um, so I can't say there's one most important piece of advice, but, um, <clears throat> but, the first one is don't be afraid to make mistakes. Hmm. Um, in other words, if you're making lots of mistakes in a practice room, that means you're practicing the right stuff. If you sound great in a practice room, you're practicing the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, don't be afraid to fall flat on your face and then look back on it and say, okay, how did this happen and how can I help it not happen again? Um, so there's, there's point number one, but point number two is practice slowly. Um, and I know that everybody keeps saying that over and over and over and everybody's heard it from their teachers about a hundred million times. So, so maybe I'm just going to be a hundred million and one, but, 
practicing slowly is the most important thing that I think any of us can do because it prevents us from practicing mistakes early on uh, in the learning process of, you know, learning a new piece or what have you. Um, so, and when I do things very quickly, uh, like when I get a freelance call and I have, you know, two days to learn the music, oftentimes there are mistakes. Um, and when I have lots of time to practice things and I practice slowly and correctly and whatnot, then, oh my God, the time is just, so, it's used so much more efficiently. Um, and there are so, there are so many fewer mistakes and it allows me then to really listen to what I'm doing and to what's going on around me because I know things that much better. Well, and that, I think that applies at all levels. Um, for younger oh, sure. students, it's so hard to get the patience to do that. Do you have any advice in that regard? Um, not necessarily. I mean, I'm, I think that, I mean, many things come to us as we grow um, I mean, I'm a much more patient person now than I was when I was an 18 year old kid and Elsa Verdere would be happy to verify that I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> so, but, um, but I, I don't know whether there's any advice that I have other than, you know, be yourself. Um, I think the, the phrase that we know ourselves better than anybody is probably appropriate because we do honestly know what works for us and what doesn't work for us. And, and, if you have, you know, any talent or ability or, you know, drive whatsoever, you will, you'll use the faculties at your disposal, you know, to the best of your ability. And um, so I think just being yourself is fine. And, and sometimes, you know, when I was a 16-year-old driver and got my driver's license, of course, I wanted to do what every other 16-year-old did. I wanted to floor it. Um, yeah. And then I got a speeding ticket three weeks after I got my driver's license. And, well... Um, you know, that, that prevented me from speeding a little bit. So, um, but I don't think I would have learned that lesson had I not made the mistake of speeding in the first place. Yeah. Um, so I think it's okay to be yourself. Um, but to try to, to fight, you know, to, to do things like practice slowly and carefully and what have you, um, I don't know whether that's something that you can teach somebody or whether that's just something that people develop the patience to do. Um, it's like Perlman talks a lot about it um, in some of his uh, blog posts and whatnot. But, um, and, uh, <clears throat> but I think the most important thing to go slow with is all of the fundamental things. So scales, arpeggios, uh, articulation studies, um, you know, tone exercises, long tones, what have you. So all of those things I think are really important to just go slowly on. Um, and I'm, as I say to many parents that call me and say, you know, can you, can you help my kid get into college? Well, no, I can work with them on the literature that they're working on, but you know, whether they get in or not is really up to them. Um, they're the ones that have to play the audition, not me. Um, so I think if you, and, and I tell them, you know, if, if they want to do it, if they want to do the work, they will. And if they don't, they won't. Yeah, so true. And it, it really is kind of that simple. I mean, if you want to do something, you'll do it. And if you don't, you won't. So um, you've worked with some, to sort of segue out of the teaching now, um, we talked about Opperman and Stoltzman, but you've also worked with a lot of composers and conductors over the years. Um, sure. Most notably, Elliot Carter, Brian Ferniehow, 
Pierre Boulez, and, and recently, of course, Michael Finnessy. You were just recording an album. Um, is there anything you would like to share that stands out from the interactions with those people? Well, the, the thing that stands out is that they're all alive, um, except for Elliot Carter now. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, it was, I think that making music is such a collaborative effort Um it's not all about me. It's not all about, I mean, if it's just me and a pianist, for example, it's not all about me and it's not all about them. It's about what we're doing together. It's about how we're working together. And I think working with composers was, you know, something that I'm not going to say it distinguished me or what have you, but I think it was something that I was willing to do that a lot of people weren't um, because they found the music very weird or off-putting or what have you. But Um, What I saw was, or what I noticed rather, when I was a student is when I would walk on stage to play a Brahms sonata or the Mozart concerto or something very well known in the clarinet repertoire, I would walk out and I would get to about bar three and then all of a sudden my heart would start beating out of my chest um, because I was so nervous. Mm -hmm. And when I went out and played contemporary music, the same thing phenomena did not occur and I thought well why in God's name is this not happening um, and what I figured out was is when I went out and played the older composers Brahms Mozart things like that um, I was dragging behind me basically a 200 year old ball and chain called tradition mm-hmm. in other words you know everybody in the audience already had an opinion for this is the way that it goes yeah, not to mention that that kind of goes back to earlier when you were saying about making the music your own. Um, everyone there had an expectation of how they wanted it to be. Sure. And I think that expectation in any kind of relationship, whether it's a musical relationship or a personal relationship or what have you, can be, it can really be something that causes disaster if you don't know what the expectations are. Um, it's... I think with Mozart, for example, the expectations are obviously that it's, you know, tempos are a certain, within a certain range, um, you know, your sound is, is sort of like X, Y, or Z, your, um, you know, your, your, your 16th notes are even, you know, all of that. You obviously play in time and play in tune. But um, with contemporary music, I found that I could still do all the same things. I still had to play in time. I still had to play in tune. But I was doing things, I was playing the same 12 notes, but just in very different orders. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it gave me this tremendous amount of freedom. Uh, And then as I sort of got more into contemporary music and started doing things like extended techniques, like quarter tones or multiphonics and what have you, I thought that, you know, that basically just increased, you know, the palette of paint that I got to walk out on stage with because suddenly I had all of these other coloristic possibilities that I didn't have. Um, so, you know, for me, at least back then, uh, certainly not now, but back then, um, you know, Brahms and Mozart was a little like black and white and contemporary music was technicolor. Mm -hmm. Um, and, but the collaborative aspect of it was the thing that I liked the most, because if I had a question like, you know, the Mozart concerto, what Mr. Mozart, why did you do this? Well, I couldn't very well go dig him up and ask him. Mm-hmm. Um, but the first person that wrote a piece for me named Christopher Peterson, um, I could call him up and say, hey, Chris, you know, what did you mean by this? Um, and so he could explain it. 
And so all of a sudden I felt like I was doing something that was so much more authentic um, and so much more meaningful. Um, so I, I saw a niche for myself and I just took the ball and I ran with it. Um, and ever since the, the first piece that was written for me was in 1994 and I've worked with composers ever since. And there are some that are more special than others. Ed Carter was certainly one of them. Um, I, I felt very lucky to know Carter. Um, and, um, and Michael Finnessy is certainly another one. Um, and, but again, it's not, yes, their music is great, but I think their music is great because they're also great people. Mm -hmm. Um, and that the, the experience of working with them was really, you know, sort of what turned me on to these, these pieces. And, you know, when Michael and I have recorded this CD that, that you mentioned, um, which by the way, comes out on January 8th, um, um, we recorded this CD over the course of about 10 years. Um, and, the first piece was giant abstract samba that was a, a concerto for clarinet and wind ensemble and then there were four other pieces and one of which had been written before so four of the five pieces on the disc were written for me um and um and it was it was just a it was it it sort of chronicles our friendship in a way um so i get to tell a story through some of the recordings that get put out um, and some of the pieces that were written for me about, you know, this is how I know this person. And, you know, these are, I mean, some of the pieces were, were, were sort of very intimate things. Some of them were also very funny things like Mike, Brian, Marilyn and the cats, or I think I actually got the word order wrong. I think it's Marilyn, Brian, Mike and the cats. Yeah. Um, you know, Marilyn Nonkin was the pianist that I, I premiered the piece with. Uh, Brian was somebody who was important in my life back at the time. Uh, I'm obviously Mike, um, and the cats are actually my own cats that a recording engineer came over and recorded in my house. Uh, so they're, they're played back electronically. So, you know, in some instances, I mean, certain things are, are somewhat autobiographical, uh, in a way, you know, they, they, they tell the story of, you know, the time when these four people or, you know, three people and an animal, uh, got together and, mm. you know, had, had a grand old time, um, but um, but the human aspect and the collaborative aspect is really what I like about you know composers the most, um, and uh, I'm reminded all the time you know when I mean since you mentioned conductors um, I'm reminded all the time that conductors don't actually make a sound, mm -hmm. <clears throat> but I think there are some very inspiring conductors and then there there's some conductors who are not so inspiring and I think the most inspiring conductors are the ones who sort of just let the players play. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they they don't try to micromanage the ensemble in a sense. Um, they respect the fact that there are a whole bunch of individual artists on the stage that are sort of trying to 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 come together and be collaborative uh, with each other. And I mean, really, you know, playing in an orchestra is like playing in a giant chamber music group that just has one particular leader. Um, and I like conductors like, uh, you know, Boulez, um, you know, there, there are even some really great wind ensemble conductors, uh, that I've worked with like John Whitwell, um, and, you know, other people, certainly James Levine, Ricardo Muti, so on and so forth that have really been, been wonderful at just letting us play. Mm -hmm. Um, because, because that's, that's what we wanted to do. We wanted to get together and play and, and we we ended up making great music because the conductor helped us do our job. Um, so I think that that's that's really the kind of conductor that I like to work with. I don't like to work with you know 
the traffic cop conductors who who want to tell you when to stop and go and you know hurry up and so on and so forth they're almost like a conduit to the music in a way well sort of yeah i mean they 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 unify i think great conductors help unify in an uh, an ensemble in a way that that bad conductors can't um i mean it's it's i mean conducting an orchestra can sometimes be like herding cats um you know it's not exactly the easiest thing in the world um and certain orchestras follow better than others um but i think great conductors understand what their role is they understand how they can help the musicians and sometimes the best way to help musicians is to either get very involved in what's going on and sometimes the best way is to get very uninvolved and you know to sort of relax and not you know beat the hell out of everything mm-hmm. <clears throat> so um but it's it's something that i've been fortunate i've been fortunate enough to experience both sides of it um and i i like those that help rather than those that get in the way obviously so let's just go back to your cd a little bit um it, uh, you've been on more than 40 records is, is that true that's true and two of them actually are coming out on january 8th would you want to talk that's about the other one a little bit sure the other one is on navona records um that was a project i did through parma uh parma recordings and uh it's the music of a composer named carl volrath um this disc is called lingering longings it's the second volume of clarinet and piano literature uh, that I've done of Carl's and Carl was a composer that I met at the recording session. I had spoken to him a little bit, um, but he's at Troy, Alabama, um, and, uh, at the university down there. And he's a, he's a wonderful guy. He's, he's 84 years old or so. Um, he writes music prolifically. He's written hundreds of clarinet pieces. Um, and I highly recommend them for younger students. Um, because I think they're they're easy to understand, they're easy to put together, um, they're 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 chock full of really great content uh, and whatnot, and so I I recommend them highly. But so we did this disc. Um, the pianist is Yoko Hagino. Uh, she's a pianist that I work with here in Boston. Uh, we recorded the disc in three days, and um, it's just uh, it's a smattering of pieces that were written for Timothy Phillips uh, and his family. Tim is the clarinet professor down at Troy University. Um, and so it was sort of an interesting peek into somebody else's family life uh, with Tim and his wife, Trina, uh, their dog, Casper, um, after Casper Mouthpieces, of course. Um, and uh, so, so it was an interesting peek because things like, uh, there, there are a couple of tracks like Christmas time, Thanksgiving. Um, there's a track. There's a uh, one of the movements is about their dog Casper. I think it's called Casper on Parade, um, <laughs> and other things. But they're all very cute pieces that sort of you know again it's like looking at a Polaroid of somebody's life. Like here's this little snapshot of what was going on or or what Carl witnessed, and he sat down and he wrote a piece about it. Um, and it's it's a very very cool thing to do. Um, I'm very grateful that I've been able to do two records of this music because I think it's, I think it's just terrific. Um, 
and I wish that, you know, I, I hope that through the records, people will actually get to know Carl's music a little better. So you, um, that's all, you must be very busy with that stuff right now. Are there any other albums in the works or? I just finished recording an album of all American recital pieces uh, by Robert Beezer, uh, David Gomper, um, Joseph Schwantner, Lucas Foss, Derek Bermel, and I think that's it. Um, so there are five or six pieces on the disc. Um, that's on the editing floor right now. Um, the, the rough edits have been made, and so we're, we're doing that. Um, we recorded uh, with the Boston Modern Orchestra Project. Uh, I'm the principal clarinet player there. Um, <clears throat> we do recording all the time. Um, and so usually there are several discs that are in the works at the same time. We probably release, I'm going to guess, somewhere around 10 discs a year. Oh, my God. Actually, um, we've released over 50 discs um, so far. And, um, and I think a good 40 of them are actually on our own label. Um, and I say our, it's certainly not mine. I'm just a member of the orchestra. Um, but, um, but I'm very, very proud to be a member of this group because we were just named... Uh, uh, Musical America's Ensemble of the Year. Wow, congratulations. Uh, we, yeah, so, well, congratulations to Gil Rose, the conductor and and uh, and director of the whole thing. He's really steered the boat in such a marvelous way. Um, <clears throat> and I'm very, very grateful to work with a group like this. So, um, but, so there's that, and we have multi-Grammy uh, nominations and all kinds of other stuff. And it's it's really been such a, a an adventure doing things with this group and many of the things that we actually do in concert, we also put down on record. Um, and so, you like know, live CDs, you mean? Some are live CDs. Most of them are actually studio recorded. I mean, we, we record in really great concert halls like Jordan hall, um, in Boston, uh, mechanics hall out in Worcester, uh, the Distler center, uh, Distler, Distler hall rather at, uh, at the, the, the Tufts university arts center. Um, so, um, and some, like I said, are actual live recordings because the performance went particularly well and the composer likes the fact that, you know, this went well and there's a, there's a really nice continuity to it. Um, sometimes continuity can be a difficult thing when you're chopping up and editing things. Um, mm -hmm. but, um, but most things that we've done, I'd say are probably studio recorded, um, you know, and, and properly edited and, and whatnot. Um, so those 50 <clears throat> discs that they've put out. Is that in addition to your forty other CDs you're on? No, those are those are those are part of the, the catalog. I th I haven't counted. Oh, um, I, I I'm on I'm on over fifty. Um, oh wow, 50, fifty CDs and uh, chamber and solo stuff or whatnot. I think the number is somewhere around ten or so. Um, so uh, you know, a lot of the recording that I have done um, is actually with with Beamop and. Um, BMOP does mostly orchestral things, but we do have several chamber music discs out as well. Um, so, uh, you know, things like, um, the, the disc by Eric Moe, actually, um, that's mostly chamber music. Um, and then the same thing with, uh, with a composer named Reza Valley. Mm -hmm. Um, that's, that's also mostly chamber music as well. So that's a lot of experience in the studio. Is there something that stands out as being memorable or a lesson that you learned that was most valuable or something you could share? The thing that I had to learn was it, it actually made me more nervous playing for a microphone than it did for an audience. And what I had to learn how to do was just sit down and play. 
um, and not worry so much about the microphone because, you know, there was somebody there who was going to help you fix certain mistakes, obviously, on the, you know, on the editing floor. But um, in order for a record to sound great, it has to sound like a performance. It, it can't sound like somebody walking on eggshells just desperately trying not to make a mistake. Mm -hmm. And so I sort of learned, you know, how to go for it, you know, time and time and time again. I mean, we would sit down and we would do the same passage 10 times in a row. But number 10 had to have just as much energy as number one. Because you might use a couple of bars from take one and a couple of bars from take 10 and a couple of bars from take three, four or seven. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, you have to play with such a tremendous amount of energy. And by the time I'm by the time we're done a session, I think every player in the room is pretty much exhausted and, you know, sort of cross-eyed. Um, and uh, we recorded the John Adams Chamber Symphony and, uh, and his second piece, Son of Chamber Symphony. And we did that in a 10-hour block uh, from, 12, uh, from 12 noon until 10 o'clock at night. And by the time we were all done, none of us could see straight. Wow. But it was so much fun. <laughs> For that kind of stuff... Are you guys recording, if you're in a hall, I mean, there must not be any isolation. So everyone plays for every take? Everybody plays for every take. Do you ever record in isolation? No. Interesting. Nope. Absolutely not. Nope. I mean, we're, we're quite honest with the recordings that we do. Um, the only time that there might be any isolation is if there is an offstage part mm -hmm. um, or uh, if there... I remember for the Steve Mackey album Dream House that we did, which is possibly my favorite record that we've done. Um, but there was a guitar quartet and the guitar quartet was actually in Amsterdam. And so we played and we recorded all of the orchestral stuff. And then they did overlay the guitar quartet stuff simply because to have them over to the States and put them up in hotels and all this other stuff would have been so prohibitively expensive. Um, so that's the way that we did that, but, but that's a, that's a real rarity. I mean, most things are done, you know, just live in a concert hall. So, and yes, we hang multiple mics and whatnot, but the majority of things I think probably comes from just the main stereo pair that's sitting right in front of us. It's so interesting because in, in pop and jazz, it's, it's almost completely the opposite. Um, yeah, well, I think, I mean... It is. And I think with classical musicians, we're so used to getting on stage and making all of the adjustments ourselves. And I'm not going to say that pop musicians don't do that, because I think I think many of them certainly do. But but when it comes to making a record, um, they want much more finite control over things after the fact. Mm -hmm. um, but classical musicians, I think we want finite control over everything sort of all the time. Um, and you can't, I don't know. I did the very first thing I ever recorded uh, in a professional studio, the, um, they wanted to do things in isolation. And I found that so difficult because I had, a, I was sitting there with a pair of headphones and the piano was being piped in. And, and I, I just had no idea how to respond in any kind of a natural way because I couldn't tell how loud the piano was. I couldn't hear the resultant harmonics from the piano. Um, there were so many things that were just wrong with the way that I'm used to playing. And so for me, that, that type of approach is just not a helpful thing at all. And 
every musician that I know that's a classical player that has tried to record that way usually ends up not liking it hmm. um, because it's it's just not what we do. So that's a fairly involved answer to you know working with conductors kind of from before um, all the stuff in the studio we were just talking about. Um, what role does working as a chamber musician play, do you feel, in a musician's development? It seems to be something fairly dear to your heart. Sure, because I think that all ensemble playing, whether it's a large ensemble or a small ensemble, is essentially chamber music playing. Um, I think chamber music <clears throat> and studying chamber music in school really was the thing that taught me how to listen to things um, because I don't think I was the best ensemble player when I was a younger player. Um, all I had experience doing was was playing in bands basically until I played in the Philadelphia Youth Orchestra and then all of a sudden I had all of these extra things to listen to and I had never really sat next to a bassoon or anything so it was mm -hmm. it was a strange experience but um, I started doing a woodwind quintet um, during that year that I played with the Philadelphia Youth Orchestra. And as a result, I think my listening abilities got better. My, my pitch matching abilities got better. My cueing abilities got better. Um, I was just, I think it really helped me improve how I was able to communicate what I was doing um, and to listen and to look at what others were doing. Um, so even though, yes, we have conductors and, and whatnot, um, I mean, if you talk to any string orchestral player, I can tell you that they're probably looking at the concertmaster before they're actually looking at the conductor. Mm -hmm. um, because that's, you know, that's how you make sure that, you know, 30 people play at exactly the same time, um, is one person sort of leads the way who is actually playing the instrument. Um, so, <clears throat> but chamber music, I think, is... It's critical. Um, at the at the conservatory, we have a very rigorous program. Um, we require chamber music for the undergrads for the second, third, and fourth year. So they get six semesters of playing in different groups of winds and strings and pianos and brass and what have you, uh, percussion as well. Um, <clears throat> so I think it's it's critical for developing certain skills that every student needs in an ensemble, um, and it's it's just a much it's it's a much smaller way to to start to develop those instead of having to listen to you know 15 different instruments you start with maybe listening to 3 mm -hmm. uh, and sort of figuring out okay this is this is how the viola works or how the trombone works or how the this works or that works and and you sort of get to know the personalities of each instrument and then you can take that and carry that into the larger ensemble like the orchestra or chamber orchestra or what have you and and you're just that much more informed with, okay, I know how this works and I know how, how this instrument sounds and what kind of harmonics are coming out of it. So it really helps you just learn how to listen better. Um, so for me, it's, it's critical. Um, and I encourage my students to do as much chamber music as they possibly can. Speaking of your students, is there any particular tip that you give them for collaborating with others or advice that you can provide? Sure. Um, I try to remind my students that everybody is at a different level. Even if there are two, quote, professional players, um, there are different things 
that are important to each person. Um, so in a sense, everybody is working on a different level. Um, so I, I think that it can be very useful in a chamber music setting to sit there and not say a word and to try to do the things that other people ask for. I think it could also be interesting to be the one who maybe runs the rehearsal at one point or another. Um, it could be an interesting experience to be, you know, just one voice of many with a whole bunch of people talking. Um, <clears throat> but I think that I tell my students um, to try to be patient um, and to try to find people to play with that, that are really a good fit. Um, and also, I think probably the biggest thing I tell them is not to take things too personally. Because if somebody says, hey, you know, this seems out of tune. Can we work on that? Somehow the musician always cringes a little bit and thinks, oh, my God, they're, they're pointing the finger at me. Well, no, it's it's I mean, pitch and tuning is a collaborative effort. It takes two people to play in tune. Well, um, and sometimes it's just a, an element of experimentation. Something like a clarinet sure. and a violin, for example, are so different that you you have to spend that time and, and maybe sort it out. Sure, exactly. Um and, uh, you know, the clarinet can be difficult chamber music-wise also because we don't use vibrato traditionally. Um, mm -hmm. I do. Um, I, I think that, you know, it's, it's a, little, a little crazy not to use vibrato at certain times because I think it's a really wonderful colorative tool. Um, but, but we don't use vibrato. We get only the odd-numbered partials in the harmonic series. Um, and what, so there are a lot of things that make the clarinet quite different, um, in, in some kind of a chamber music setting, um, different from the other winds. And so far as when we play softly, we go sharp, they go flat. Um, and then vice versa, when they play loudly, they go sharp and we go flat. Uh, mm -hmm. so it's, it's really, it is a big experiment to, you know, I mean, the, the chamber ensemble is sort of a giant Petri dish for, for, okay, let's see what comes out of this. Um, <laughs> But um, but it's it's fun. And I think, you know, having fun, you know, remembering why you got into music in the first place, um, presumably you got into it because you liked it um, and you liked working with other people and making really beautiful things happen. Um, so I think that th those are the things that I remind my students about the most that, you know, hey, you you know, you you like doing this and you're you're good at doing this and you're you're, you're really making beautiful things. Um, so, you know, let's, let's try to leave the frustration at the door. Well, it's interesting you say all that. Cause I, I, um, of course this interview is not about me, but I remember from my own beginnings in music that I was always in like marching band or school band or whatever, band, band, band. And, uh, it wasn't until university I first chamber played chamber music really. And, um, I was also, I was, I was blown away by the amount of listening required. And also what I heard when I did listen in that sure. sense it's and then you can apply that back to the band situation it, for sure um you know i i was I, I, for me you know again it was it was such an eye opening experience um and uh and then i thought oh you know this is this is great because then i can use this knowledge in just about every single area that i you know or, or, or every medium that i play in mhm mm so many younger groups too. I've noticed that it's almost like the the party where people are whispering and then everyone's talking and then everyone's yelling and you still can't hear anyone. 
Um, the, the, ba- the band can sound like that too. And that sounds like college. Yeah. <laughs> but to, to tell a young student, especially to listen across the room and, and really get into what the trombone is doing, they maybe haven't thought about that. And, but that applies all the way up to all levels of music. Really. You've, you've got to be there for it. Well, sure. And I mean, I, I've learned, I've learned so much about my own instrument and, and how it functions by talking to people, people that are not clarinet players, by talking to bassoonists or violists or bass players or percussionists or what have you. So, um, you know, I, I do, I never underestimate, you know, the value of learning from people that don't play my instrument, number one, but number two, I recognize that these are the people that I have to play with that maybe I'm not going to play with any other clarinet players, but I am going to have to play with all these other instruments. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's important for me to figure out what their perspective on things may be. Well, the nature of chamber music is, and I would argue, I'm not sure if you'd agree, but it also is a bunch of soloists in a way. I mean, everyone is very exposed and, and has to be extremely competent. Sure. I mean, I, I think about chamber music. Well, I think about music making in general, like I think about cooking. Um, and I love to cook. First of all, um, I'm, I'm a good cook. I wouldn't say I'm a great cook, but I'm a good cook. Um, and, uh, I think about cooking in the following way. I mean, if I'm making a pot of soup, I make the soup and I put all the, I chop all the stuff up and I make the, you know, have my ingredients ready and, and I put it in, you know, I put it all in the pot and I let it cook for a little bit. And then I come back and I taste it. So this is very much like practicing and rehearsing for me. So I, you know, the tasting is, okay, so this is the evaluation of what I just did in my practice session or rehearsal. So I tell, okay, it needs a little salt. Okay, so then I know I have to go back and, you know, practice this or practice that in a different way uh, or what have you. And then I come back and I taste it again. And eventually you arrive at something like, yeah, okay, fine. I could put that on the table and eat that. Um, so eventually you'll arrive at something that, okay, you know, this is, you know, let's go try this in a concert and see how this works. Um, but it's, you know, thinking about things like this for me makes the rehearsal process a lot more fun. I like rehearsing a lot more than I like performing. Hmm. Um, because I, I think that there's so many possibilities in rehearsal. Um, and with performing, you know, you sort of, I mean, you walk out and you, you get to do it once and there it is. Um, and that's, I think, part of the reason that I was never a painter um, because, or an artist in, in any other mediums because I didn't like the fact that, that I could finish a piece of work and then hang it on my wall and there it would be for all eternity. Um, and that's interesting you say that, though, be, sorry to interrupt, but it's interesting you say that because you're so into uh, recording albums, which ex- to some exactly. extent... Well, exactly. And that's exactly what I was about to say. Oh, sorry. Um, No, no, that's fine. Um, Because um, making a CD is sort of like that. Um, And so I've gotten very critical about, you know, I really want things to sound as as good as they can sound. I suppose that CDs are kind of a necessary evil um, in, in that way, because, you know, you, you want people to hear your work, you want people to hear the composer's work it gets put out into the world in some way shape or form but but really those who are listening that are learned listeners they recognize that you know you're doing this on one particular day and you know 
for for me, it it really is kind of a snapshot of okay, this is the kind of day I had on that day. Well, um, and that can be music's different too, because just because you've laid it down on record doesn't mean you can't play it again and rehearse it again and tour it or anything like that. You you can well, sure. recreate that for people live if you if you choose. Well, you can, and and you can also just because you made one record of something doesn't mean you can't make another. Yeah. You can always make another. I mean, Mr. Stoltzman has multiple recordings of the Copeland clarinet concerto out and, and various other pieces as well. And, you know, they're, they're very different. Well, the different collaborators would, you know, at least be enough to make a, a new record of the same piece. For sure. You know, and so, so I, I, that was the biggest hurdle for me to get over in the recording process was, oh my God, this is going to be, you know, permanently put down on something. And that was like the painting that was finished that would get hung up on the wall. And I just hated that idea. Mm -hmm. um, but um, the same as many people don't like to have their picture taken, um, for example. Um, I'm not crazy about having my picture taken because, you know, I don't, I don't know, maybe I'm having a fat day or something, <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe I'm not in the right headspace to, to look at myself in a photo and say, Oh God, you know, what, what was I thinking? Mm -hmm. You know, what, why would I wear black and blue together and look like a bruise? So Michael, um, is there somewhere people can find you online? Uh, you're, you, I know you have a website. Is there a Twitter handle or a Facebook page as well? People should. Yeah, there is. Um, the, I mean, my website is michaelnorsworthy.com. Um, my Twitter handle is MN clarinet, uh, and my Facebook page is MN dot clarinet. Um, so, uh, you can find me at all those places. I do have a LinkedIn profile as well. I have a YouTube channel. Um, all of those things are sort of constantly in flux and being updated, uh, and whatnot. But, um, but I'm very reachable via social media and I'm pretty communicative. And what about your latest discs? Are those available on, I think you said CD baby and Amazon? Yes, CD Baby um, for the Finacy disc, um, and then the they will they're they're both distributed by Naxos, and so they'll be available on Amazon, iTunes, and you know all of the other electronic things that you can imagine. Oh, so and you are for, iTunes yeah, and all that too. Yeah, that's that's for that that's both physical distribution and electronic distribution. Okay. So one more thing I should quickly address for the listeners. Um, some people had submitted questions. Honestly, I feel we have addressed all of them through this lengthy conversation that we've had. Um, we, I think we had so much to talk about, we could almost do a, a round two. So if you do, <laughs> I don't know how you feel about that, but... Um, sure, it's fine. If, if you do think of anything you'd like to ask, Michael, go ahead and post it there on the Facebook page at clarinet.com. Also, Michael has agreed to provide us with a copy of the Finacy CD entitled Wham. And uh, were you going to sign that copy of the disc for us, Michael? Sure, why not? Great. So that's a really interesting collectible item for, for one of our listeners to win. And um, to be eligible to win that, you've got to like our Facebook page. And uh, you can also like the Instagram account, the YouTube. We're going to include all the social media elements and then draw randomly from that. So one lucky winner will will have that shipping covered to their door anywhere in the world. Um, so thank you so much for coming on the podcast today, Michael. I think we had a really, really interesting conversation. I, I know it was long, but we covered a lot of really great stuff that um, hopefully people had the patience to stick around for. Um, is there anything you'd like to close with? 
Uh, no, other than I think what you're doing is a really great thing, and you know, I hope I hope a lot of people will listen, and uh, I think you're providing a nice service for the clarinet community. So thanks for having me. Thank you so much, and, and I think I'd love to have you back. We should make this uh, part one of two, perhaps. Sure, that'd be totally fine with me. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Sean. Have a good night. To be eligible to win product mentioned in the Clarinet.com podcast, you can follow us on five forms of social media. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and SoundCloud. The winners will be pulled from those five sources. If you find that you're enjoying the podcast, you can support it in four ways. You can follow and interact on social media sites, including Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can follow the podcast itself and post positive reviews on SoundCloud, YouTube, and iTunes. You can discuss and share content on your own blog, podcast, or social media with your friends, colleagues, students, and family. Or you can support it directly by purchasing your new and neat clarinet products from the clarinet.com online store at clarinet.com store. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.